The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I do some dumb things from time to time. I don't mean necessarily bad things, I mean like mindless things. I mean really mindless things. Not just like I forgot my keys somewhere for, you know, and I I went off without my keys or I lost my wallet. I'm saying like things that I'm like, man, my brain took a vacation for a couple hours. I mean some really dumb things that I do from time to time. Let me give you one notable example. Rebecca and I had just moved into the house that we live in now and I was doing some house projects around getting the house uh, ready to go where it was supposed to be, and um, the, there's one light fixture in the kitchen that needed to be changed. It was a, a large metal fluorescent light fixture, and I needed to change it. I'd been working around the house all day. This was kind of like the last thing on my list, and I'm telling Rebecca, hey, I'm going to change this light fixture, and she says, you know, do you think maybe you should just call someone who really knows what they're doing? Which now it's a challenge, Okay. That's not friendly advice. Now I'm like, okay, I think I, don't you worry about this. I think I can handle this. So I proceed to, I get my um, metal ladder <laughs> out, of the ki- out of the garage, put it up in the, in the kitchen and uh, underneath the light fixture and I read the instructions and the instructions are saying, it's got, I've got the new light fixture here, the old light fixture is still up there. It says, okay, first go to the, the uh, circuit breaker, turn off all the breakers that go to that part of the house. And I said, okay, all right, I I got a problem with this. I mean, it's late in the day. It's starting to get dark outside. I mean, if I turn all of the breakers off, how am I supposed to see? That doesn't sound safe at all. Can't be doing this in the dark. I don't have these, like, these work lights that can light up the situation. I have to have some lights on, so I can't be going and turning off breakers. I'll, I'll flip the switch off in the kitchen, but I need the other surrounding rooms to be lit up so that I can see. So I proceed on, and um, I'm, I'm up on the ladder, and um, there's wires sticking out everywhere. I've got this thing kind of dangling down, and time is going. It's getting darker outside, so it's kind of hard for me to see, but I've got the other lights on around in the surrounding rooms, and Rebecca comes in, and she sees, she's like, are you sure that you, maybe you just leave it and just get someone in here? And I say, please, don't you worry your pretty little head about it. I can handle this. Okay, all right. So she goes, and so I, I get up there, and I, and I take the light fixture, and I move it, and at this one point, I move it, and all the other lights that are currently on dim off for a second. That can't be good. So I'm like, oh, okay, huh, well, what are my options? I'm not just going to leave this here, then Rebecca's going to, you know, look at me like I told you so. She's not going to say it, but she might as well say it. I can't just leave this dangling here, so I'll just keep going. So I'm up there on this metal ladder, and um, holding on to this life fixture. Now, you can probably imagine where I'm going with this story. I did get electrocuted. (laughs) The problem was I didn't get electrocuted till I asked Rebecca's help and invited her up on the ladder with me. She holds on to the light fixture, and I electrocute myself and my wife, okay? (laughs) I do some dumb things sometimes. I try not to do house projects as much as possible. Okay, I, 
I do some dumb things. I mean, like, really, like, my brain just checked out for a while. Like, I, have, I should really not trust myself and my thinking. I do some dumb things. Okay, this is a safe place. Anyone else here willing to admit, don't, don't leave me hanging all the way up here by myself. Anyone else willing to admit, sometimes I do brainless things. I, I want to see, okay, some of you are proud that you do it. Some of you are not raising your hands, and you're lying. Okay, how... <laughs> Offended by that. All right, we, I think it's safe. I'm just going to start with this premise. I think it's safe to say all of us from time to time have these moments where we're like, man, what happened to my brain in that moment? I just checked out for a little while. I don't know what I was thinking. I think at, at some point in time in our lives, we all have this moment. We all have this moment where we're like, man, it is good that I have other people speaking into my life. It's good that I'm not just off all by myself, all alone, trying to come up with the way to go. I have other people in my life because I really can't trust myself that much. I want to just start with that premise. That from time to time, man, we all have things where when we look back, I can't believe I used to think that way. I can't believe I, I think that. If we really are honest with ourselves, there's some point in our life where we've got to say, man, I just, I just can't totally trust myself. I want to start with that premise, and here's why. I think that plays into what's probably the most explosive topic in our culture right now. That is a fundamental part of the discussion of what's probably the most explosive topic in our culture right now. We're in a series called Humanity Hardwired, and what we're doing is we're, we're looking through Genesis 1 and 2. It's the very beginning of the Bible. It's where it's a story of God creating everything, and it focuses specifically on how God created humanity, and we're learning all of these truths about how God wired us, what he intended for humanity. And it actually addresses very, in a very straightforward manner, this extremely explosive and even at times polarizing topic. This passage in Genesis 1 and 2 directly addresses things like gender identity, sexuality, sexual preference, marriage, how is marriage defined, how it should be defined. I mean, those are some of the most hotly debated subjects right now in our entire culture, and this passage in Genesis 1 and 2 addresses that. Now, we're going to take a look at, these, at this subject matter this morning, but before we go any further, let me just say this. This subject is so intensely personal. It's so weighted and it's so heavy that we, can't, we shouldn't even begin to talk about this until we lay just some ground rules of how this subject should be discussed. First of all, it should be discussed with respect. There's just never a time or room or place to handle a discussion that's this weighty, disrespectfully. And if we go into a subject where we disagree on a subject matter, but if we can, if we can be respectful to one another, then we can have a constructive conversation. First thing is respectful. Second thing is we should go into a conversation that is very gentle. We're talking about some things that are deeply personal to people and weigh in deeply on their life and their life experiences. We shouldn't go into this conversation on either side with a sledgehammer. We should go in very gently. And the third thing is we should go into a conversation like this humbly. So we truly don't understand each other's life experiences and none of us have this completely figured out. 
This morning, um, it's going to look a little bit different how we're going to go through this than how we usually do things. This morning, we're going to use as a guide a, a list of several questions that we're going to just use as our guide as we go through this. And we're going to go through this and, and just try and talk about this and just dialogue about what does the Bible say about some of these things. Go ahead and pull up this list of questions. We're going to go through some of these questions, go through all of these questions this morning and just use them as a guide as we talk through this, this issue. And we're going to talk through specifically how does the Bible address some of these questions. But here's what I would say. You may be surprised when we go through the Scripture. We're going to go through specifically Genesis 1 and 2, but other parts of the Scripture. You may be surprised when you see what the full Bible has to say on some of these things. But, before, but the, that actually leads us to the very first question on this list. Um, the very first question is, why would we care what the Bible says on this issue? And that's, that is a fair question. Honestly, that might be one of the most important questions on this entire list is, is why would we care on such an important topic, such a cutting-edge topic, such a, a topic that modern people wrestle with or modern culture wrestles with, why would we even care what the Bible says? In fact, um, you may uh, have heard of the artist Macklemore. Anyone heard of that, that artist? They came out with a song called uh, Same Love. It was a huge, huge hit, this song. You guys heard this song? You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. Huge, huge hit, this song. And there's a, a very important line in this song that really represents the culture asking that question. Here's the line from the song called Same Love. This song is, is advocating for what they would call marriage equality, is advocating for same-sex marriage, among other things. And as they're advocating for that, one of the lines says this, and it's a fair question. It says, and in quotes, God loves all his children, is somehow forgotten. But we paraphrase a book written 3,500 years ago. Here's the line from that artist in a, a huge, huge hit song on this subject matter of gender identity, of sexual preference, the definition of marriage, on this issue. And one of the, the key phrases in there is, okay, but why do we care what an old dusty book that's 3,500 years old, why do we care what that, what that book says on this subject? That's a fair question. And let's just start right there. For starters, let, let's look at this. I think we could break down life, in one way we could break down life into two categories, is either you don't believe in God, or you do believe in God. That's not the only way we could break down life, but let's just talk in terms of those categories. Someone who doesn't believe in God versus someone who does believe in God. If, if someone doesn't believe in God, they're completely free to do that. They're free to not believe in God. If someone doesn't believe in God, of course something like the Bible, it's not going to make any sense to them to use that as an authority. Why would they care what the Bible says? So if someone doesn't believe in God, it's understandable that they would struggle. Why do I care what an old book says? There's so many other old books that, that no one talks about. Why would I care what that book says? But the caution should be given to that person who doesn't believe in God. Understand what we're reducing all of life to. If someone doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe that there's an intelligent designer, doesn't believe that there's a creator, doesn't believe there's an all-knowing, almighty God, then basically what that means, that existence, that worldview, basically reduces us down to a product of scientific laws. I'm just the, the random result, the meaningless result 
of science coming together to producing me. I'd like to think, within that worldview, I'd like to think that there's significance to my life, but that's just something I'm making up. The reality is I'm not much different than a cloud that, because of the laws of nature, appears. If there's no God, then what the result of that is it's an existence where it's just all what we see is all there really is. I can create more, but really that, that's just, those are just constructs of my imagination. So reality, think about that. If there's no God, if it's just what we see, it's just this natural uh, skin and bones, this natural flesh, just nature, if that's all that there is, is just matter, then things like justice, love, equality, all those things are, they may be things that we like, but they're not real. They're things that we've made up. All that exists is just nature producing things, including myself. That means that my life in death is not that much more significant than a blade of grass. If there's no God, then really, really all I'm left with is saying, okay, there's no such thing as good, there's no such thing as evil, there's really not much, really any such thing as justice or injustice, it's just matter, so I'm just going to hold on in a meaningless life, just hold on for dear life. But I think what we know deep down is there is more than that. If there's more than just what we see, then that's pointing to the fact that there is a creator. So if there's a God, then we're left, okay, let's say we believe in God. I believe in justice. I believe in love. I believe in equality. I believe in those huge concepts. So there's got to be more than just matter. So if I believe in that, then I'm, I'm left with two categories. Okay, there's a God. He's either very involved with his creation or he's not. He's either personal or he's impersonal. If he's impersonal, you've got to scratch your head about a God who would see humanity and see all of our struggles and say, you know what, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm not going to waste my time. We'd have to scratch our heads about a God who's disinterested in humanity. That points to a God that's pretty cold and pretty unloving. So if we believe in a God and we believe he's good or we believe he's loving, then we look and we say, okay, he looks into this planet. He's, we, we would assume then he's spoken into this world so we know the right way to go. If, he, if there is a God and he is loving and he is active, then we would say, okay, he's got to have spoken into this world and not in some like weird, puzzling way. He wants us to hear him. So he's spoken into this world in a very blatant, obvious way. It would be something like the Bible, which simply says, these are the words of God. You say, yeah, but I don't know about the Bible. The Bible has done a lot of damage. Well, people have misused the Bible and have misused the Bible to do some terrible things. They have, they have twisted the words of the Bible to, to justify their rudeness, justify their bigotry, to justify abusive behavior, to justify even violence. People have misused the Bible, but when the Bible is taken at face value, when, it's, when we submit our lives to it, it's also been used to champion things like freedom and love and justice and equality. In fact, when you look around, at, at, when you look throughout history and see those who have submitted themselves to the true words it's saying in the Bible, you see some of the people who are the most self-sacrificing, selfless, loving people and movements in history. All that to say is this. Why would we even address the Bible? Why would we even look at it? All I'm saying is the Bible is a legitimate place to look for truth and for answers. Let me review. It's a legitimate place. If I believe that there's some, such thing as love and justice and equality, that those are real things, it points to a creator. If I believe that it's a, a good, loving God, then I believe he would try to speak to humanity. 
If he's trying to speak to humanity, then I would look around and I'd say, okay, how, what, is he, what is blaringly saying this is the word of God? How is it impacted this world? And when we look at the Bible, we see it's rightly used. We see it's brought peace and love and justice. So why would we even look to the Bible? It's a place that we look saying, God, we, want to, we believe there's a creator. We want to know your thoughts on it. And if you're God, then by definition, you don't mature over time. You don't change your opinion over time. You don't shift to humanity. If you're God, then you've been all-knowing from the beginning and you're giving us timeless truths. And so we'd look at the Bible. And as we look at the Bible, we may find some things that, are, that surprise us a little bit. So let's jump into this issue. We're going to go to Genesis uh, chapter 1. That brings us to our second question. Our second question is, what does the Bible say about gender? Uh, do we have any, any Facebook users out there? Anyone, anyone use uh, Facebook? Several. Facebook, about a couple... About a year ago, a little over a year ago, walked into a pretty massive conundrum. If you use Facebook, you know it asks for a lot of your personal information and asks, you know, where you live, where you studied, um, some of your different preferences. And one of the things it asks you for is it asks you for your gender. And so Facebook was trying to be sensitive to, to all the different people that it works, works with and that use Facebook. And so it decided, all right, we need to broaden the category of gender options. So it's, it had male and female, and then it started adding some. And um, it added, eventually added something around over 50 different options to give you just kind of an idea. And this is just in their attempt to just trying to be sensitive. And that impulse we can applaud. They're, they're really trying to be sensitive. This is what the, the result was. Let me just give you a couple of them. This is some of the options. Male, female, uh, neither, gender questioning, gender variant, things like trans male, man, trans male, trans woman, trans female, transsexual. Gives a couple dozen other options. And after they put these options up, even um, folks from the LGBT community was saying, look, if you try and go down that path, it's not going to be successful because you're going to continue adding and adding and adding. And so even that community was saying that's the wrong path to go. So a couple months ago, they changed their policy again, and they give you really, really three options, male and female, or the third option is custom. What's interesting is that really fits what our culture is trying to say right now. Gives the option for people to write in their, their own, how they feel is their gender. And that really is an interesting Commentary on where our culture is. It's saying, okay, there's male and there's female, but what if someone doesn't identify with either one of those? What if someone is saying, I, I know that um, my body says I'm one, but I don't identify, I don't feel like that. And, and then if there's other options, shouldn't they have the freedom to define for themselves? And this is a, a tricky question that we're trying to sort through this and wrestle through this as a culture. So let's look and see what the Bible has to say about this. It talks about it in the invention of man and woman. Look at Genesis chapter 1. Look what it says. We're going to look. It's going to be up here on the screen. This is verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now look at this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here's the perspective from the book of Genesis. 
perspective is that God, when he created human beings, he created two genders. He created male and he created female. It's something that that idea is continued, that thought is continued through scripture, but it's most explicit right there at the creation of humans. He says, I've created two genders. I've created male and I've created female. Now, unfortunately, that may raise more questions than it answers. Okay, yeah, but what if someone's saying, okay, that's fine, but I don't identify with that. I don't identify with this. Don't I just have the freedom to to define how I'm feeling? Okay, maybe that was God's intention, but don't I have the freedom to say, I don't don't fit this category, I don't fit this category, and just express what it is that I feel like I, I, I am, Don't I have the right and the freedom to do that? It it leads us to this next question. Look at um, this next question that we're going to address. Question three. Doesn't someone have the right to define their own sexuality? This is really maybe the most fundamental question of all of these. When it comes to gender, shouldn't someone have the right to say, okay, I I don't want to fit in that category, this category. Don't I have the right to say, I fit this category? Or, or from a different angle, if someone says, okay, I know that uh, you might think that I'm supposed to be attracted to someone of the opposite gender, but that's just not how I feel. That's not who I am. Don't I have the right to define for myself my own sexuality? Well, we want to take a look and see how the Bible addresses this. And we're going to look at a passage here in a second. The past, but I want to, before we get this, this passage, this is pretty heavy. And so before we read this, I just want to give you a little background on what this passage is looking at. This passage is defining how humanity has rebelled against God. And it talks about various expressions of that rebellion against God's plan. And one of these descriptions pertains to this issue. Let's look and just let the Bible speak for itself. This is in Romans uh, chapter 1. Go ahead and bring it up on the screen. Romans 1 verse 26. This is what it says. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's a pretty heavy passage. Let's review what it's saying. This is not highlighting this one issue of homosexuality. This is in a passage that's discussing a lot of different ways humanity has rebelled against God. In this passage, here's what it's saying. God has given everyone freedom how to live. Humans are not robots. Every person does have freedom how they choose to live. But what God is saying here is that there are certain things that human beings, that we do, all kinds of things. There are certain things that we do that are against the plan that God has, the plan for us to flourish. For example, when it comes to sexuality, the plan that God has for sexuality is that sex is supposed to be reserved within the context of marriage. Sex is so personal, so powerful, so passionate, so vulnerable To protect it, God has placed it within this covenant promise relationship where two people vow to be committed to each other for the rest of their lives. Anything outside of that, he says, is against what my plan is for humanity. I may feel an impulse 
to operate outside of that. But what God is saying, that's outside of humanity. What this passage is also saying is practicing something like homosexuality, sexual acts between two men or between two women. What this passage is saying is it's saying that's outside of God's plan for two people to flourish. He has a plan. That's not how he initially designed humanity to function. Yeah, but come on. That's just... That's fine, but there are people that say, look, I can't help how I feel. I was, this is from birth. I look back and this is how I felt. I know that you're saying that, that, that God designed me to be attracted to, this, to the opposite sex, but all my life, this is where my sexual attraction has, has, is. I've, I've been attracted to someone of the same sex. I, I can't help that. That's just how I am. I think we've got to be very sensitive with that because if... We don't know someone else's story. We don't know what someone else has gone through. But here's what we know. We know that, a lot of, that for all of us, there are things placed inside of us. Even from birth, for all of us, there's things inside of us. There's desires and urges inside of us. And just because they feel natural to us doesn't mean that God has placed his stamp of approval on it. Just because it, there's things in every single one of us that God says, I know that that's what, you, that's what you desire. I know that's what it seems like you feel. And I know that even seems like what's best for you. And God's saying, that's why I'm placing these scriptures here. So that you can hear how I am intending for humanity to flourish. And I want to draw you into my plan. I want you to trust me and take a step and trust me. We all have those areas of our lives. And what this passage is saying is the issue of homosexuality is one of those areas. Just like sex, any sexual activity outside the context of a husband and a wife. Okay, but you said that human beings have freedom. Human beings have freedom to do what they, they want. So, I mean, okay, so God gives, gives us freedom. We're not robots. So then if two people love each other, if, a, if a, two men love each other, shouldn't they be able to get married? I mean, shouldn't they, I mean, if they're going to commit themselves for the rest of their life, they're, they're going, they want to have a marriage where they're going to be, they're vowing their lives. It's an expression of their love, their selfless love for each other. Shouldn't they then, if they have the freedom, shouldn't they be married? What brings us to the next question. It says this, what does the Bible say about marriage? We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we're going to check this out. Um, there's, a, there's a Presbyterian denomination. There's many Presbyterian denominations. One of them is called the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church of the United States of America. It's the largest Presbyterian denomination. And just this past week, denomination-wide, that denomination declared their affirma- affirmation that same-sex marriage is a legitimate form of Christian marriage. So in any PCUSA churches, there's other Presbyterian churches that don't necessarily align with this, but in PCUSA churches around the country, in states where it's legal, they, uh, they believe that same-sex marriage is a, a legitimate form of Christian marriage. So this is a big issue right now that's boiling in our culture. What does the scripture have to say about this? What does the Bible say? We're going to go back to Genesis uh, chapter 2, the creation. Go ahead and bring up verse 21. Let's read through this. This is when God makes a human, makes men and women. Look what he says, or man and woman, I should say. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she, is, she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is how the whole creation account ends. If you remember, we talked about this last week. There, Adam is there in the garden by himself. God said it's not good for man to be alone, so he creates a woman. And he has man and woman uh, on this planet by themselves. And then you see what happens next is a marriage happens. He says, he says, okay, I've got a man and a woman. Man's not supposed to be alone, so he makes a woman. So there's now two human beings on the planet. It's a man and a woman. And he says, therefore, he then invents marriage. He says, a man and a woman will leave their families and they'll become one. That's the invention of marriage right there. So here's some things that we learn from this, very, this passage from the biblical perspective. Is first of all, marriage is not a social construction. It's not something that we've just invented. It's not something that we're just protecting. There's not a traditional view of, a, of American marriage that we're trying to protect. It's something that God invented, according to this passage. It's something that God invented from the beginning. It's not something that's like, well, let's just get rid of this old puritanical tradition. Let's look and see what God invented. I mean, this is interesting. He's making marriage before any other human institution. There's no government. Yet, there's, there's no, uh, any other kind of organization. There's not even a church yet. There's nothing like that. The first human organization, it's a foundation to human society, is marriage. And how he defines marriage, when he sees that man is alone, he makes a woman. And it says, therefore, he says, therefore. In other words, so this is what marriage looks like. And according to the Bible, how marriage is defined is between a man and a woman. Yeah, but come on. I mean, you got two people that they really, they love each other. I mean, shouldn't love win out? I mean, if two people love each other and they're committed to each other, shouldn't, shouldn't love win out? I mean, isn't that enough that they want to be committed to each other? I know it's not the ideal, but shouldn't that be enough? Well, I would suggest that using love as the definition for marriage, while it's clean, it's tidy, it's nice and neat, it, it's a little bit too simplistic. It's a little bit too simplistic for a couple reasons. It's that, is, that by itself leads us actually into other things that are, that are dangerous. That's the same argument that's used to, uh, to endorse polygamy. Well, if a group of people, they love each other, they want to be married, shouldn't they be married? It's, the, it's sometimes the same argument that used to argue child marriage. Well, I mean, like if a, if a young child or a teenager loves a, a grown adult, if they love each other, even though one's underage, shouldn't they be able to get marriage? I'm not saying that's the same thing at all to same-sex marriage. I'm just saying to use love as the definition for marriage is just, it's too narrow. Okay, but what about two consenting adults that love each other? Why isn't that enough for a definition of marriage? Shouldn't love win the day? Well, I would suggest that Love should win the day, but true love always puts truth first. Always puts truth first. Let me give you an extreme example. If I have a friend that I deeply, deeply love, very close, lifelong friendship, and they're going through, they've got a destructive pattern in their life. Let's say they've got some addiction that they're not admitting, or let's say they're in an abusive relationship. That if I truly love them, I will risk the relationship to speak truth into their life. I'll put my relationship, true love would mean I, I'm risking that, I'm risking that to, lo- to love them, to, for, to put truth first. 
yeah, but that's different. I mean, these are two people. They should, shouldn't they? What if they're happy together? You're, you're, it's not like they're damaging their life. Well, according to the Scripture, here's what the Scripture's saying. God has a plan for every human. And when we deviate from that plan, we deviate from the plan for how we're supposed to best flourish. This just sounds like you're against this whole thing. It sounds like you're just saying God is against gay people. It sounds like, uh, sometimes it said this, and this is hard for me to even say out loud, but this last question brings up, it says, um, it's sometimes asked, does the Bible say that God hates gay people? It's hard for me to even say those words out loud, but it's such a, a common question, and maybe you've gotten that before. Hey, you, you believe that all gay people are going to hell? Is that what you believe? It's hard for me to say those words, but it's an important question for us to answer. I just want to read this passage to you. First 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. I want to read this passage. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Wow, what are you saying? Well, this passage is defining what unrighteousness looks like, and here's what it looks like. The first thing it says is sexual immorality. That word is pornos. It's where we get the word pornography from. And the word sexual immorality, literally what it's talking about is, is sex outside of marriage. And Jesus defines that further. He says, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he's committed a sexual immorality in his heart. He's committed adultery in his heart. So Jesus, or this passage is defining what unrighteousness is. It's um, lust... That's, that's just let out, it's, it's lust that's not held back or, or addressed at all. It would be reading or looking at pornography. It would be a boyfriend, girlfriend fooling around. It would be adultery, like he said there. That would be unrighteousness. It says other things. It says things like stealing. That could mean anything from lying on taxes. It could be plagiarism, shoplifting. It could be having pirated media. It could be anything. It's, it's stealing. It talks about idolatry. That means any moment that I'm putting something as a priority over God, that's unrighteousness. It says other things like, like greed and, and being a swindler is, is the word that it uses. It says a whole list of things. And one of the things it says is homosexual acts. Now notice what this passage says. It doesn't say the temptation for those things. It's saying acting on those temptations. This defined unrighteousness. So what does that mean unrighteousness is? Who, who is unrighteous? That just got, that's not even a complete list, and that just targeted every single person in this room. That defined every one of us. And it says the unrighteous will not make it into heaven. What this passage is saying is, what the Bible teaches is that every one of us is on a path to hell. But there's verse 11. And such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Does the Bible say that, that gay people are going to hell? Does the Bible say that, that God hates gay people? No, it actually it doesn't say that at all. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that all of us are destined to hell except Jesus saves us. The Bible says we're all sinners. There's not just this special sin. The Bible's not saying, well, all, all, everyone is good and going to make it to heaven if they live a pretty good life except for this person. No, it's saying all of us are unrighteous and Jesus came to save all of us. He came to save, he came to save us. The Bible says that, in fact, it says the opposite. It says God loves us. He loves us so much right where we're at 
that he sent his son Jesus to die for us. He loves us right where we're at and he's going to take us on a journey. It says he not only declares us, to be, not only washed us clean, declaring us not guilty, but he also not just declares us not guilty, but he also sanctifies us. He changes our hearts along the way from the inside out. I want you to see this testimony. I, I could talk about this subject, but there's so much power in seeing a testimony on this subject. I want you to see, this was at a, a conference uh, not too long ago, and uh, a man's sharing his story. He's interviewed by a pastor by the name of J.D. I want you to take a look at this testimony. So Dustin, I'm going to give them a chance to hear a little bit of, of your story. Um, in fact, maybe it'd just be uh, helpful for you to start out telling them a little bit about what your experience, what it's been with this. Okay. Uh, like J.D. said, uh, my name's Dustin, and yeah, so really since I can remember, um, there's, there's kind of been a, a separation, I felt like, um, towards other men, and uh, a desire or intrigue to, to know them um, and to, to relate to them, and uh, I guess around middle school, the onset of puberty, um, those desires became sexualized. Um, and it was more than just interest, and uh, I, that's when I first started noticing that, you know, these weren't just intrigue or interest in, in other guys, but it was actually sexual, um, and I had no idea what to do with it. For a while, I just uh, kind of tried to ignore it, assumed that it would go away, um, that maybe this, this was normal, but uh, it definitely, it didn't, um, and it's something that I kept hidden and in the dark for a long time, all through middle school, high school, and it was really um, just through God working in my life and bringing me to some really low places um, and by a lot of bad decisions on my, on my part, but God still being sovereign over those, that uh, it really, I guess five years ago, I started the process of letting people into this area of my life, and which opened up a whole nother um, venue for God to work in my life in this area that he hadn't, I hadn't given him before that. So you don't remember a time where you chose this, that was something that just kind of more became yeah. an awareness, is that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, why would I choose this? <laughs> um, it's like, I felt separate from everybody, different, um, I didn't want it, but it was there. And I could, I prayed, I prayed so much. Um, it was really freshman year of high school where I, I kind of really gave my life to Christ and took ownership over that rather than just what my parents raised me in. Um, and I can't tell you how many times I prayed for this to go away. Um, and I just, so much of doubting that people could love me, that God could love me um, because of this. And I wouldn't, no, there was never a choice or would I have chosen it. What's it, um, what's it like to be in an environment like this one and to struggle with that? You mean like in church or in front of like hundreds of people? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to assume this is not a pleasant experience, so let's go with the first, let's go with the first one. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said uh, or alluded to, my parents uh, raised me up in the church. I've grown up um, in, through Baptist churches, um, and it's definitely, I think, even, it's very easy even hearing like JD talk to to just really jump on board and say, yeah, homosexuality is wrong, it's bad, they're awful, they're different. Um, but something that, and that, that's been hard, 
it, it leads to, I think, those who, who do deal with same-sex attraction um, and homosexual desires, they feel very um, separate and isolated. Uh, it's, it's scary. I feel, uh, or I have and at times feel dirty and different than everyone else in the church. I look around and think, um, why, why can't I have the same desires that they have? Um, or why, if they knew some of the things I thought or the, some of the things that I wanted, they would in no way interact with me. Um, they would just condemn me, bash me, wouldn't love me, um, and see me as a shameful and one who doesn't love Jesus and uh, want to pursue him because these are present in my life. Um, was there ever a temptation for you just to kind of throw up your hands and say, forget Christianity, or forget, I'm going to reinterpret the Bible. Was there ever a temptation to, to do that? Yeah, there have definitely been times where it's been really difficult. And in those moments, it's less a, a matter of me, I really want this. I know this is going to be like best for me. It's more a just discouragement and frustration of the, this is never going away. Um, this controls me. This, I can't fight it. I can't stop it. Um, and it's those thoughts and the, the idea to go down that path of really completely realigning what my life looks like and how, I, how would I interpret uh, Scripture and what God says for my sexuality. Um, it's, it's been out of a motivation or a sense of discouragement. And I, I might as well give into it. I can't fight this. There's nothing I can do. Um, I've tried. I've prayed about it. Almost like... I'm just giving in. I'm settling. That, that's been the biggest draw to kind of going and just living out um, in those desires. I mean, I was dead in my sin in this area and every other. Um, and now Christ is offering something better. He's offering himself, and he's, he's saying, Dustin, I have something better planned for you. I have, um, I have something that's for your good, for my church's good, my people's good, and ultimately for my glory. And he... He offers that, and he empowers me to choose that. There, there's a hope that I never thought was available. There's hope that even though this may not go away, and maybe I won't be completely healed um, in this life, that, that Christ loves me no matter what, and that Christ loves me no matter what I do or what I don't do, and there's just there's security and I'm made right in that, and I'm okay, I'm safe. I don't have to always doubt God's love for me because this is going on, or I'm feeling this way, or wanting these things. Um, and it's, it's, it's hope, and he offers that to all of us. It's a powerful testimony. Church, you realize that is every one of our stories. It's parts of our life. That we say, man, if people knew this about me, they would look at me totally different. They would reject me. I can't, I can't bring this out to the surface. I, I don't even know if God loves me because of this part of my life. That's, it doesn't matter what the issue is. That's every one of our stories. I've got this, it's, this in my past, these, these things, these desires. I've got things in my past. No matter what they are, we've got them. And, and so often we can say, man, if anybody knew about this, they, they wouldn't want to be near me. If, you know, I can't even imagine that God wants me. 
But that's the story of the gospel. Is that he looks at us right now where we're at and he loves us so much. He loves us. He loves every one of us right where we're at. And he's calling us to himself. Church, we have to be a place that it's safe to have that story. Whatever the issue is, we have to be a place where it is safe to have that story. You may be asking the question, okay, what do I do if I don't agree with you? Can I even still come to this church? I mean, if I, I don't, I'm not even sure I agree with you at all. And here's what I'd say. Of course you are welcome here. You are, anyone is welcome into this room. We are a place of imperfect people who are just simply opening the Bible. But here's what we're all saying. God, you can have every part of me. You can have my time, my thoughts, my sexuality. You can have how I spend every part, my, every relationship, every part. We're just opening that up and we're on a journey. We're all at different places in that journey. And we're just simply saying, I need Jesus. So Absolutely. You say, how do I, I handle this in, in my life? I've got a relationship in my life, maybe a close relationship, family member, a friend, a coworker. I've got someone in my life. How do I handle this relationship? And what I would just say simply is use as a guide the message of the gospel. There should be never a place. There's no place. The gospel gives us no place for self-righteousness because we're all sinners. Every one of us is in the same place. It gives us no place for taking something like this lightly or making jokes about it. We use the gospel as a guide. We, we steward the gospel well. The first thing that someone's going to know, none of us change until we first know Jesus and know how much God loves us. And we use the gospel as our guide. You remember, we can have a conviction and a conviction doesn't necessarily mean it's at a, a polar opposite of love. We can have a conviction, but we can steward that conviction and still have love the entire way. If there's one thing you could walk out of here knowing, if you forget everything else, but you just remember this one thing, please, please hear this one thing. Wherever you're at in your life, wherever you're at, whatever you've done, whatever is in the quietness of your life, Whatever you say, I will never be able to share this with anyone. Whatever is in your life, please know one thing. God loves you more than you could possibly fathom. You can't even imagine how much he loves you. Well, it doesn't feel like he loves me. After hearing those verses, it doesn't feel like he loves me. See, those verses set us up to understand the great lengths he went to to show us his love. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for you. His son, he sent to die for you because he says, I love you. He says, I know you don't know all the answers. I know you don't know the entire path. You may not even know the next step. Just take one step here this morning and say, I will, will agree that God loves me. I will accept the fact that, that he sent Jesus to die for me, to save me and wash me clean. And a God that's that loving, I'll say, God, I surrender myself to you every part of me. And maybe you just need to accept God's love this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Would you just pray with me? Would you all bow your heads and close your eyes? I want to give you an opportunity. That's you. Just pray this prayer in your heart between you and God. God, I have so many questions about you. But one thing I'm taking in faith this morning that you love me. 
you love me so much you send Jesus to die for me and that you want to be in relationship with me and you want to spend eternity with me. So I accept that love. I accept your forgiveness. And I offer my life, every part of it to you to lead me on this journey. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with someone about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.